This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is E.G. Galano, co-founder of Infura. E.G. launched Infura out of consensus in 2016 to meet a growing need for blockchain infrastructure providers. Our discussion covers the challenges of running an Ethereum node, how Infura convinced developers to trust a centralized service provider, and why Infura plans to decentralize in the near future. Please enjoy this conversation with E.G. Galano. EG, thank you for joining me today. We're excited to have you. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. I thought an interesting place to start for you. The reason why I was looking forward to this conversation is I think you might be one of the most knowledgeable people on Ethereum, but I wanted to go back to your, not your founding story yet, but your starting story in Ethereum. How did you get involved with Ethereum and how did you come to meet Joe Lubin and get involved with Consensus? I don't know if I'm the most knowledgeable person that you've spoken to about Ethereum, but thank you. Around like, Middle of 2015, I was working at a startup here in Los Angeles where I'm based. And a coworker and friend of mine, we were talking together saying, you know, we should look into doing something together, doing something, our own startup. What would we want to do? What are the interesting things? And we wanted to be closer to what was bleeding edge at the time. And we were looking at AI and ML and augmented reality stuff. And he said, well, what about blockchain stuff? Are you following blockchain at all? And I said, no, not too much. I was familiar with Bitcoin and I followed Bitcoin a bit. But he said, well, what about this new Ethereum thing that just launched? Are you following that? Because they have this new smart contracts concept and it's really fascinating. I really think there's something there and you should look into it. That friend Maurice was really the one that got me down the crypto rabbit hole. He, through a previous life in academic and research circles, had come across Joe Lubin pre-Ethereum, and was already starting to work in some of the same circles in the early Ethereum development days. And he was the one that introduced me to Joe. Joe had started Consensus within the last year that was focused on being a venture production studio, investing in growing products and projects focused on the Ethereum space. Nobody knew like, oh, I'm going to go do DeFi or I'm going to go do NFTs or anything like that. It was more I'm going to see what's possible with smart contracts and see if I can innovate on this protocol. Because at the time, it was sort of a war zone in the Bitcoin space of where innovation should be happening or should it be happening at all. Like All of the things that started to move some people into the more experimental Ethereum smart contract space. And so we were focused on just creating tools to help developers get into Ethereum. And that's sort of how we started in Fira was what is it that developers need right now? And right from the beginning, brilliant people, really intelligent people with great ideas were focused on this smart contract layer 
But to be able to get to that, you had to start with just running node infrastructure, like an Ethereum node to just connect to the network. And people within consensus were starting to ask us for help with that. And it sort of grew organically from there. Can you help people understand what made the idea of smart contracts so special? The way you're describing as there were technical people that were interested, very smart people as you're referring to, but what was it about smart contracts that got your attention? I think it was the analogy that the Ethereum Foundation was using at the time to describe the potential as a world computer. You don't really hear it too much anymore, but during that 2015-2016 phase, that's how they were describing it. What are the potential applications that can be built if you had something like a world computer, a shared state database that everybody had access to where the information was verifiable and everybody was able to run compute in an equitable way on this shared resource that would be this Ethereum network? It was really hard to think what you would use that for. And that's what made it fun. I think back to when streaming video first became a thing and people are like, what could we do with streaming video? Are we just going to be like watching the news and things like that on the internet? Are we going to be doing other things like Twitch as like a concept, like live streaming video games and like a whole industry growing up from that? You don't start with the idea and then create that technology. The technology exists and then people come up with great novel ideas that whole industries grow out of. I appreciate you remembering back to that time where it seems less obvious. I feel like nowadays there's all these conversations about usability and use cases and what you're building. But if you stay back in that time period, when you were thinking about Inferior, what was the inspiration to launch this? We don't know what this technology is for, and you're already trying to say, we need to help more people figure it out. What was the inspiration behind Infura? It was a bit of a pragmatic and defensive play, actually. My co-founders and I don't consider what we did with Infura to be a huge risk. Relatively to other risks people take in their careers, maybe going into the crypto space in 2015, 2016 is considered a huge risk. But we didn't think it was because we were excited about it. We had a contract with Consensus to get funded to build out the initial versions and things. So it's not like we were like strictly just eating ramen in a garage trying to build this thing. It allowed us to say, well, what can we do that is providing immediate value to people? And there were people trying to do the first iterations of stable coins on Ethereum and a lot of the early primitives of what would then get built into a lot of the decentralized finance and NFT products later on. And they were experimenting and a lot of those early things failed. But all of those things that were being experimented on needed this infrastructure connection to the network. And we said, this is a great way for us to contribute to the space we can take kind of a safer bet and just build great developer tooling and let everybody else experiment without having to worry about this layer. And it was tough at first because we had to convince people that it was useful. Some people felt like it was, but a majority of the people at the time were more interested in running the infrastructure themselves. They were very much a roll up the sleeves and do it themselves type of community. So we had to say, trust us in an era where it was trustless was the thing. Trust us to just do this for you. We'll overall as a community be stronger and better down the road if we both focus on our independent things. Yeah, that's a great phrase. I think we're going to come back to of trust us versus trustless. So with those early adopters who are more the roll up your sleeves, help us understand what was life like before 
if you were a developer trying to build something on Ethereum before Infura came into existence, what was it like for someone to develop one of these early projects? People tell me it was a huge pain in the ass uh, before <laughs> we came along because that was my first entry into the space. When I arrived within a month, we had already created that first version of Infura. It was the first thing that we decided to do together. So I didn't get to experience doing smart contracts without the stuff that we had already built. A friend of mine, Nick Dodson at Consensus at the time, who now is doing his own project called Fuel Network, he had said, man, you don't know how hard it was. I had to submit a pull request to the Ethereum Foundation's repositories to get just like a new specification added so that something like Infura could exist. And what he was referring to was back in the day, you had to sign a transaction and send it through your own node. And that kind of packaging was in one thing. It wasn't separate. You can sign it separately and then send it to the node to get processed. It all happened in the same go. And so just doing those basic iterations, like a lot of people did work that allowed Infura to exist. So when you use something like the MetaMask wallet in your Chrome browser, when it signs that transaction and sends it to the network, you couldn't do that up until this EIP, the Ethereum Improvement Protocol, went through to actually change the specification to allow that to happen so that signing can happen in MetaMask and then you send it to a node, whether that's what we run as Infura or you ran yourself. Can you help people understand, myself included in this, what does it mean to run a node, to spin up a node, to operate a node? What is a node and what does it mean to run one? Did you ever use the BitTorrent network? Did you ever download a client, download a MP3 video, anything like that off BitTorrent? I did, but I think maybe it would be helpful to analogize. If you want to use BitTorrent yeah. as an example, like I don't think people thought they were operating a node. So BitTorrent's kind of like an early predecessor to the peer-to-peer networks that now power blockchains. Blockchains are peer-to-peer networks, BitTorrent's a peer-to-peer network, which means that you're not just going through a central server to get access to the data that you want to get access to. That data is spread across a bunch of people on a connected network. And the goal of a protocol like BitTorrent or Ethereum is find where the data is and get it back to the person that's looking for it. To be able to participate in any peer-to-peer network like that, the minimum requirement is you have to run that software that connects you to the network. A physical analogy to that is to connect to the internet, every single one of us has to have a modem, like a cable modem or something in our homes that we have to connect us to the internet. For blockchains, it's that node software. You can't participate in this network if you're not running that infrastructure piece. Just like on BitTorrent, you couldn't download any of that data unless you were running the software for that network. That makes a lot of sense. As we're kind of going through this chronologically, which I think is helpful and kind of infures rise, in their early days, when I think of homebrew or people with modems, the first people to use it definitely want to play with their own hardware, hack their own software. They're not looking to outsource it to an infrastructure company. So when did you see a tipping point of an adoption of, you know what, I'd rather outsource this versus do it on my own? Friction is the thing that typically forces people to look for alternatives when it gets hard or when it gets expensive. And towards the end of 2016, there were these attacks on the Ethereum network. They call them the DOS or denial of service attacks, where an anonymous person or persons out there started spamming the network with a bunch of transactions, really trying to see if they could break Ethereum. 
like force the nodes that connect this network to run out of resources and not be able to maintain the consensus across the entire network that keeps the transactions flowing. During that phase, because of all of that spam, it really became a challenge to run this node. So if you were a developer that's just trying to do your own thing, that node that used to just be able to download, install, and it just kind of was on its own, you didn't have to babysit it, now required more of your attention. Now, maybe once or even twice a week, sometimes there was a new release that was mandatory and you would have to upgrade that software. We started to see an uptick in user registrations and people trying out our service during that time because they were saying, this is not what I'm trying to spend my time on. A lot of people weren't doing Ethereum full-time at the time. A lot of them were doing it in between school sessions or as their Moonlight Hours project. So imagine that you're getting off of work. You're like, great, I'm going to go start doing some of that smart contract development I'm excited about. And instead of spending the two hours on that, you're spending it updating your node software and doing all of that stuff, which wasn't what you were excited about. So people started using Inferior during that phase. And then as Ethereum started to get more and more usage over 2017 with the big token sale ICO craze that started around the beginning of 2017, it continued to get harder to run that infrastructure. And throughout that phase, more and more people started to use Infura. I think we'll probably touch on this a few times. So hopefully it makes sense. But is there anything, and maybe it's a naive critique or a misunderstanding, did people ask, is this against the ethos of blockchain and peer-to-peer networks of like having a central service provider run something? Like, was that in any way a challenging part of the history of Infure? I know it might come up more now because of how successful you guys have become. But in those early days, was it a question of, is this really what we want to do? Even though I agree, it's a friction. People want help with it. How do I just work on this and not that? Does that make sense? People did say that. There were a lot of people that didn't use us. If you search Twitter archives and things and news stories, it heavily skews negative towards <laughs> Infura because a lot of those early people said, this is against the ethos of decentralization. This is a risk of like censorship on like the network. And our approach to that was, it is if we were the only option. If we were trying to sell a proprietary solution that sort of locked people in and tricked people into using us, and then when it was too late, they realized they're actually the bad guy, but now I'm stuck. Like, that's a risk. And what we saw as the difference is that requires you to have a proprietary API that when people are building SaaS products, like traditional software as a service products, they try to define, like, what's our moat? Like, how do we protect the value that we're accumulating for ourselves from competitors and others that come down the road. And you do it through differentiation in ways that's really difficult to copy, which is proprietary APIs that aren't easily copyable by somebody new. There were already APIs like that that existed. You could go to some of the sites. The one that I always remember, because it's one of the ones that I came across first when I entered the space, was BlockCypher. BlockCypher was an entity that had an API, but it was a proprietary Ethereum RESTful API, which wasn't something that anybody else supported besides BlockCypher. And from what we could tell, developers weren't really using it because they didn't want to just rely on BlockCypher. So our team said, 
let's not build our own and say ours is better than Block Cipher because let's look at what people are currently using, which is here's the API that if you download that software and ran it yourself, this is what the API looks like and acts like. And we're just going to emulate that and scale it as much as possible. And it's going to make it so that somebody can use their own infrastructure and they can use ours and switch back and forth in between. And there's absolutely no vendor lock-in. It should at best provide value and make your life easier. And at worst, your life is exactly the same. And so that's how we presented it to people. And that resonated. They're like, yeah, okay, I get that. Maybe you guys aren't trying to be evil and we're willing to work with you. And six years later, that's still how we try to operate. We really are in it to create the best developer tools and help the ecosystem help empower developers and not just look at it as what's in it for us. How are we going to try to lock this developer in over time? Is Infura a for-profit? Yeah, yeah, we are. We have a paid product. For the first three years, we were completely free because we were in it to grow the ecosystem. You can consider it like we had a massive grant to just help grow the ecosystem for the first three years. And then in 2019, we launched our paid product. That's probably a whole nother story on how you transition from being seen as a free public good to being a paid product without getting skewered by the marketplace. I'd like to, I'd like to talk about that because I think that lots of people say that in the beginning, like do no evil and we really just want to help. But then the profit motive of if your product is so good and you're the Amazon cloud services of node providers, you want to be better than Azure and Google and dominate and take all that money. And so it's an interesting problem to have the ethos of we're trying to be helpful and not trick you or lock you in. But know that if you did, there's probably some other people that have an incentive that think that's a massively profitable opportunity. There are definitely competitors that have seen, hey, and fear has gotten pretty big. It looks like there's a lot of value here. I'm going to see how much of that I can capture for ourselves. And they approach it in a very different way. That sort of battle comes down to the traditional battle between SaaS providers who can outcompete on price, features, quality of service, and things like that. We believe that that core ethos is important, the why we got involved in the space. A lot of the people that work at Infura and at Consensus got into the space because we felt like we wanted to try to build different systems. The thing that I would say when I was trying to recruit friends of mine from traditional web to very comfortable jobs was, you're working at a fan company now, you can always go back and work at a fan company. That's not going away. That opportunity is not going away. We're fortunate and privileged enough to have this chance to try to do it differently. You're not sacrificing a lot taking that risk, like, let's try. Let's try to do it differently and see if it works out. And so far it has. So we are for-profit. We aim and strive to be a successful, profitable product, but we don't feel like you have to do that at the expense of the ecosystem that we're trying to help. Tell me more about what that was like going from the grant, we're here to help infrastructure play, to turning into, we want to start pricing our product and having a pro version or whatever it was. We struggled at first at how to monetize. Now it's kind of obvious everybody just went with a SaaS model of there's three tiers, developer team, some growth or enterprise tier, custom plans and stuff like that. The early Web3 days, people were much more experimental. Like, oh, should we have a token model? Is the only way to monetize this through a token? Who should be paying for the traffic? Is it the developer? I'll use OpenSea since many people are familiar with OpenSea. OpenSea has 
smart contracts that power their platform. And that's really what the user is interacting with. Who should be paying us? Who is our customer? Is it OpenSea or is it the user that's interacting with that contract? It wasn't as obvious now, and maybe it still isn't. Maybe that model could still flip more like a internet service provider model in the future where the end user is more the person paying for the infrastructure. Right now, the model has become that developer like OpenSea and other platforms are paying the infrastructure provider. And they're essentially subsidizing the cost of the infrastructure for the users that are using their systems. So we went through a lot of brainstorming sessions and token, no token. And then finally, when we arrived at, okay, let's keep it simple. We're going to start with a traditional SaaS model and we can introduce some sort of tokenization or crypto element to the way that our business model works in the future. That's what we started with. And then it was the challenge of, now, how do we tell these people that already didn't trust us to run this infrastructure for them that now they have to start paying? So we did a lot of work on who are our users? What are they using it for? There were a lot of students going to hackathons building on Ethereum. I think Uniswap's one of the most popular examples of somebody like fresh out of school going and building something at a hackathon and it turning into something really big. We didn't want to stifle the growth of people like that by saying, give us $10 a month or $50 a month. So we did a bunch of work looking at our traffic and saying, I think if we set our tiers at this level, those types of developers will have more than enough headroom to grow and experiment. And once they get to this point, it's justifiable that there is infrastructure costs that we just can't subsidize forever. And it's reasonable to now have a developer tier and a team tier and the structure that we have in place. And once we had that structure set up, we announced it and we gave an extremely long migration path of like six months before it would go into place. And then another three months after that, before we even started to like enforce limits, it was like very much a gradual transition. So it wasn't disruptive. It wouldn't take down any of the decentralized apps and things that were relying on us. What was the reception like? And what was maybe an example of one of the developers that may have had you second guess yourself? Surprisingly, the reception was positive. People were excited saying, we wanted this sooner. We wanted this premium support and things like that that you're adding to the package sooner. That was a lesson learned and maybe we weren't talking enough to our customers at the time or our users to really understand what they really were willing to pay for and what their pain points are and what their needs were. So we started to change things after that. But a lot of those early critics started to feel more comfortable with this because then they said, okay, now I see in your terms of service, you're not just collecting all of my data and selling it. That's never been our business model. This is Web3. That's very much anti-Web3 if you're <laughs> running a free service, collecting data and then selling it. So that was never part of the equation for us. So in some ways, it might have been more challenging when people were waiting for you to be evil until yeah, you actually yeah. set out like, here's our plan. It was pretty eye-opening, like, oh, that's what you thought we were going to do? <laughs> yeah. It comes back to this point we've talked a lot with founders of just really making sure you're talking to your customers about what their pain points are and what they're actually willing to right. pay for. You mentioned the Unisop story. I think it's worth going a little bit deeper into that because I just think it's such a crazy story that I believe involves Infura. Can you tell the kind of the story of Uniswap for those who don't know it? It was the ETH Denver hackathon where they really put out a proof of concept of that swap in action. 
And I was at that event. I was one of the judges, one of the many judges for the hackathons. It was really a great opportunity to see all of the different experiments that people were trying to do with smart contracts on Ethereum and with IPFS and other networks. And that one stood out because when you looked at decentralized exchanges as they existed at the time, they looked very much like traditional trading systems, pretty complex, a little daunting to a non-trader, non-technical person that's just trying to go and do a simple swap of, I want to trade Ether for this other token. And then you go and you see this proof of concept, and it's this very simple user interface of what token do you have? What are you swapping to? The UI played a big role in it. The fact that this presents such a better user experience for somebody just trying to make a simple trade on Ethereum, like this is going to be a big deal. And I remember sharing a link to that demo with the rest of the Infura team. And I said, hey, check out this Uniswap thing. This is really cool. Like if you're into DeFi, you should start using this instead of I'm not going to throw names under the bus, but this other one that was around back in like 2018. So at the ETH Denver hackathon, is it true that the founders of Uniswap used Infura that quickly to spin it up? Is that myth or is that actually true? I think it's true. I don't consider that like a huge feather in our cap because we were pretty much the only option at the time. They weren't going to run the infrastructure themselves. They were focused on writing the fat white paper to explain what Uniswap was and could do. I would go to these conferences and every single table where somebody was hacking that I went to and I'd ask what they were building, I would just casually ask, what are you using? Are you running your own node? They're like, we're using you guys. We're using Infura. That was really cool. And I really underestimated what that was, how valuable that was at the time. Or maybe I underappreciated it because in talking to other founders these days, when I say, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to do? More often than not, they don't say something specific to a mission. A lot of them really want to build something useful. They're like, I want to build something that millions of people use, or I want to build something that actually is useful to developers and makes their lives easier. And they said, if this idea doesn't work out, I have some other ones that maybe I could do instead. And here we were going to these conferences and without even realizing it, 90% of the projects there were using the service that we had created. And that was really cool and then unnerving at the same time because people were complaining that we were this centralized point of failure. And here we were seeing the data saying, actually, yeah, you go to one of these hackathons and many of these people do rely on us for the infrastructure. So our team took the responsibility of keeping our service online and available extremely seriously because it's not just a streaming video platform. Like there's money to be lost in that, but this is much closer to like value being lost when you're talking about if Infura had an outage and the impact on all of these projects that we're building on top of us. Yeah, that would be very impactful. Can we dig into the mechanics of this? Maybe I feel more comfortable in finance and you feel more comfortable <laughs> in tech. So we can meet in the middle sure. here. Help me understand what I would call is like the life of a trade. But I was trying to think in my head that I think some people have heard of Infura, some people haven't, but everyone who's on Ethereum has used it, whether they knew it or not. If I log onto a MetaMask account, I go to OpenSea, I buy a board ape, and it's stored on IPFS, how in that life of a trade type scenario, how do I interact with Infura? Assuming that it's like you just installed MetaMask and you mm -hmm. don't change any of the other configuration settings, 
Infura is the default provider for MetaMask. MetaMask and Infura were both incubated within the same company consensus. They were our first customer, internal customer. Our whole launch back in July of 2016 was to support the MetaMask beta that they had just released. And so when you install MetaMask and you read any data from the blockchain and you send a transaction, that by default is going through an Infura API. When you sign the transaction, you have the option of running your own infrastructure. Like I was saying, back in the day, people would more often than not run their own node software. You could point MetaMask at that, in which case you're not using Infura. But by default, it was going to make it a lot easier for people to get started. And you could say, hey, there's this thing called Bored Apes. Like you could tell that to a friend and they could go check it out. And they could immediately go and say, okay, I'm going to buy one of those and start my collection. Our mission of lowering the friction meant now that person didn't have to understand, well, what is a node? How do I download it? How much space do I need? Do all of that stuff. So MetaMask works by default through Infura. Then when you have an NFT, typically the data, like the artwork that's associated with an NFT, does not live on chain. There are some NFTs that do store their data all on-chain, meaning it's all part of this transaction that gets included in the blockchain database that everyone has access to. But it's extremely expensive because if every single NFT was multiple megs or even just like one megabyte or something like that, and it all had to be stored on this blockchain forever, it's going to get bloated really fast. And then nobody's going to be running that infrastructure, including us. So people started to store that data elsewhere. So they'll often use another network. So IPFS is a protocol for querying decentralized data where that data can be stored somewhere else on another server, on multiple servers. And through this IPFS protocol, it can find where that data is and then present it to the user. So we run a service called an IPFS pinning service. And through that, an NFT creator or mentor can upload and pin that artwork. And then when you're getting access to the NFT that you purchased, the data that exists on the blockchain is not the actual artwork. That artwork exists somewhere else. And what's actually on the blockchain is like a reference, like a pointer to this is the hash, the content hash or the identifier of what that artwork is and where you need to go to get it. It decouples the blockchain data of the NFT from the actual underlying asset. And you can get both of those things through Infura. And then does OpenSea also use Infura? OpenSea has, behind the scenes, they might use multiple providers. I know that they use some of the other IPFS pinning services and other Ethereum services so that you don't have a single point of failure. That's Mm -hmm. kind of become the pattern in the industry is don't just rely on a single provider for your blockchain connection and your NFT data, put it in multiple locations so that if somebody goes out of business or changes their terms of service, users don't lose their assets. I want to try an analogy as a non-technical or semi-technical to see if this works, is when I think about an inferior service provider and applications being built on blockchains. Is this similar to in software building stuff with having like on-premise servers versus building in the cloud? Because like the question I have is that when someone builds a streaming service or a company says, 
we have all this compute we need to do for whatever it is. They had a bunch of servers. They were like, you know what? I don't want to maintain this architecture anymore. I want to go pay Amazon and I'm willing to do that. But then I think people realize, well, that's not always the best decision because you don't have control. So you're outsourcing to a third provider and now they become the toll takers. So this thing that was a potential cost savings is not. And so my question was, as you were talking about these things become successful, MetaMask, Uniswap, or OpenSea, why haven't we seen or have we seen them take on their own infrastructure? Like, has that ever become a strategic thing of great? I got built up on Unfair. It's a great way to get going. And now I want to take it on my own. Or is that benefit not there? They do. A lot of the big entities like Uniswap also run their own infrastructure, but they don't just trust themselves to run that infrastructure. And that's one of the great things. Like I just did a talk at a conference recently about open standards and open specification APIs. That's pretty much what we have. It's that other people can run the same type of infrastructure that we run. We're not the only ones that can provide it. And it allows this type of model to exist and succeed, which is Uniswap does run their own node infrastructure in addition to using Infura so that they're not just reliant on us and they have more control both over the data itself and the cost of storing and scaling that data. That's helpful. So there isn't as much a worry about a single point of failure. If Infura went yeah. down, Uniswap would still be running. Yeah, and people can decide how much they invest in it. Do you want to hire engineers specifically for this? Do you have extra engineers that are available? Do you have the capital to deploy your own physical servers? Things like that. Help me understand, how do you think about market share? And do you think about it as something you're proud of or something you're concerned about if your market share goes up too high because of this fragility in the system? We used to be more concerned about it. As weird as it is to say, we feel like we started with 100% market share because there was no other alternative. And that's pretty cool having been in that position because we weren't in that position for any other reason than luck. We were first. And recognizing that and seeing over time, our market share falls. Like we're not at 100% anymore. Are we at 90? Are we at 50? At this point, it's really hard to tell because that data isn't something that's easily gleaned from public data sources. You pretty much have to like pull customers and look at, are you using us? Are you using a competitor? A lot of them are using multiple. They won't just use us and somebody like Gateway FM that's out there. They'll use us and like three other providers. Calculating market share at this point is pretty tough. But what we can say is that our market share decreased over time since 2016. But the overall market grew significantly, where we just crossed half a million developers registered on Infura. We continuously get thousands of developers registering every year. So to us, our percentage of market share isn't as important as what's our new registrations that we're getting and is that increasing every month. Sorry, there was another part of your uh, market share question. It was the fragility question of before when you were 100%, you went to that conference, I think you realized, oh my God, if we go down, a lot of stuff oh, comes right. down with it. Are you like trying to help your competition? and be like, you guys need to get up and running too because we need multiple providers, not just one. Yeah, definitely do that. Like every time I meet somebody from, I try not to call them competitors. I try to use the word alternative providers because I feel like words matter. And if we keep mm -hmm. calling them competitors, we're going to get into like the typical competitive game. And as much as the world tries to force us in that direction, I'm trying my best to lead our team against that grain for as long as possible until it 
proves to be not a winning strategy, but right now it's serving us really well. So when I think about the alternative providers, every time I meet a founder or a team from one of these alternative providers, I try my best to stress collaborating with each other on the standards so that people can continue to interoperate and switch between us. Because I see this service that we provide as a commodity. And when you're raising money in the startup space, that's not something investors typically like to hear. It's like, hey, like we run a commodity. In the blockchain space, the data is public. Everybody has access to this data. The data is a commodity. And we're seeing that even if you run a SaaS service on top of it, the competition for the attention of developers, the revenue that comes in, is going to keep driving that towards this commoditization pattern. So this kind of gets a bit meta in the game where we as an ecosystem, this Web3 ecosystem, put so much energy and effort into decentralizing the consensus layer, which is the proof of work mining and the proof of stake, staking validation stuff, which is one aspect of the blockchain, which is how transactions get included in the blockchain. But you're never going to convince my grandma or non-technical people in your family that want to like trade NFTs to like run a node. That's really what it comes down to if you want to avoid centralization of the data access. At some point, everybody's going to get their data from one or two big like data providers like Infura. Like we're already starting to see that. There's like a contraction in the node provider market space. People are struggling to differentiate because you really can't differentiate when your value is, I'm the same as running a node, just like they're the same as running a node. I think that in five to 10 years, or maybe even sooner, it's hard to tell how fast you get to it. But if nothing else changes, we would be left with three or four big providers providing all of this data to not just Ethereum, but all of Web3 blockchains. Because blockchains continue to grow over time. Every transaction that you send adds a little bit of data to that blockchain. And there's research into stateless clients and light clients and ways that you can optimize. But no matter how much you optimize, data still gets added to the chain. And there is this need for somebody to run infrastructure for somebody that's not willing to run the infrastructure. And you're never going to just win on the uh, ideology. You should run this because it's good for you. We need to design systems that are scalable and trustless so that those people that will never run that infrastructure can still benefit from Web3 as a whole. So that's kind of leading into the decentralized infrastructure stuff in the direction we're going. So before we get there, which I'm excited about, now you got me on this meta topic that I'm thinking about <laughs> where I thought of like two things, maybe three things. I thought of the utility sector, railroads, and cloud service providers. And yeah. I thought about how when I think of infrastructure of like utility or railroad, you're right that you have an innovative cycle of some sort. People find a new source of energy or transportation. And then you have this march towards oligopoly and strict government regulation over what you can yeah. and can't do. Because if I think about the utilities you can choose from, they're heavily regulated at regional and federal levels because they're so critical to the system. Then I think of technology and the cloud providers, and I could say the same thing about how critical the three cloud providers are, but it's a completely different state. And when I think about blockchain, even your words, which I do think are very important, you're calling the people that you work in the same industry as, as alternatives as opposed to competitors. That's a very different ethos than either of those. It's like a third type of thing. I guess I'm just super interested in 
What are you worried about in that space that could go wrong if it looked like the other industries? And why is that a special structure if it's able to hold where you don't consider each other competitors? Before I lose this thought, because you just reminded me of something, when you mentioned cloud providers, another startup founder mentioned something really interesting to me where he said, if this were like 100 years ago and this was equivalent to railroads, cloud infrastructure would have been like regulated no differently than railroads. And right. we'd have like nationalized cloud providers. <laughs> and at first that terrified me like, oh man, would it really? And when you think about how essential web services and internet infrastructure is, you start to kind of wonder, actually, should it be? I could see how somebody could make the case for a cloud infrastructure to be regulated in a similar capacity as a utility. It's a modern day utility. I do love this line of, if you're willing to stick with it, because I had thought about this. I just had a great interview with the chief legal officer of A16Z, and it was a line of questioning I was going down of, do regulators look back at the regulation of the internet and think, that was a mistake or the greatest innovation for society? And I think that, like a lot of questions, the answer is neither. There's a spectrum there, but there's parts about that that obviously by letting it run a certain way led to massive innovations and huge gains for society that I wouldn't personally go back and change. However, if you thought that a social media company could have power over an election or that if Amazon Web Services goes down, hospitals could stop at some point, the connection point to how critical cloud became does ask the question of like, well, somewhere along the line, should this have gotten a little bit down a different path? And I'm not a, I consider myself more free markets at first, but it's not like I think that no regulation is the way to go either. (laughs) So when I think about your business, because we can't solve all the world's problems today, we can try, but I think about it just slightly nuanced differently that yes, you could argue perhaps cloud is like railroads, but something you're saying is just striking me of this ethos that you're trying to self-regulate in a decentralized fashion. Maybe this moves us to this other point that you're trying to hold on to. If we can all agree to play by certain rules, which are not winner take all, which are not zero sum, let's just offer the lowest price. Because in a commodity, it should be a race to the bottom, get as much market share as possible and put everyone else out of business. That would be standard. You're trying to kind of paint this vision, which is very appealing to me. And I wonder, like, the question was, what about that could go wrong? And what about it do you think we need to make it go right? The big thing is, does it matter? One of the things that made Infura successful is we weren't just stuck to an ideal in saying, you should care about this because this approach to decentralizing infrastructure and our approach for Infura over the next five, 10 years can't be seen as, we think this is in your best interest it really has to solve a problem for users or it won't get adopted. And I think that problem is that over the next five, 10 years, I believe that Web3 will see a significant amount of growth and adoption and that a lot of significant financial instruments and non-financial instruments will be built on top of Web3 and that the risk of the value that's built on Web3, that value will be at risk if this core infrastructure layer is not decentralized now. It's a lot harder to change our reliance on large entities like Google now versus 20 years ago. Doing it right from the beginning is important. So tell us about what you're thinking about decentralizations, the benefit of it, and where you're going with Infura. In the beginning of September, we announced that we were going to be exploring this decentralized infrastructure network initiative. And that's moved forward since 
the big Ethereum developer conference, DevCon, was held in Bogota about two, three weeks ago. And we presented an initial like technical version of what would comprise this decentralized infrastructure network. And what it is, is we're trying to put down in writing and create a protocol for how our current users are interacting with multiple providers. That if you were going to create your own NFT marketplace right now, you wouldn't just use Infura. I hope you would use Infura as at least one of the sources for your data, but it shouldn't be the only one at this point because you run a podcast. I'm sure you've had an outage of some like software that you rely on. No matter how great a specific entity is at running infrastructure, there's always going to be an outage at some point. And when you talk about infrastructure and like levels of availability and things like that, there's a pretty safe bet that a lot of the infrastructure providers that are out there can meet your requirements, like three nines, four nines of availability and stuff. And at some point it becomes like so minuscule, it doesn't matter. But when you're talking about building like blockchain infrastructure, and if you believe that a lot of really important things, both financial and non-financial, will be built on it in the future. The best thing for us to do is build infrastructure that is multi-party and not reliant on a single party for running that infrastructure. Even if that single party is us as Infure and we really believe we're infallible or can provide that four or five nines of availability. And you look at Ethereum, Ethereum hasn't had an outage since it launched its Homestead release and has been in production. Because when you have a lot of people participating in making sure that that network keeps ticking and moving along, there's too many points that would need to fail for that network to stop. And that's what we want to try to build for how people connect to not just Ethereum, but all blockchain and Web3 networks. So this is a standard that we're trying to put forward, an idea of how you incentivize people to run infrastructure. There are other people that have said, oh, we're building a decentralized Infura or we're going to decentralize Infura. And their approach is we're going to create an incentive like launch a token or something that means other people will run these nodes for others. And that's the wrong framing of the solution. The solution that we feel is not that you need to incentivize people to run nodes. You need to incentivize people and entities that are capable of running infrastructure to run Infura-like infrastructure, like scalable infrastructure that can serve millions of users. Because it's only at that scale that it really makes sense. I don't want to get too much into the specifics. We can share a link to the docs or something like that from the presentation. But this network is supposed to look like dozens, if not hundreds of initial providers that would be interchangeable. So right now, if you were going to launch this marketplace, if this network I'm talking about doesn't exist, you would go to like five different providers, have five different credit card subscriptions, have a slightly different experience and performance profile with all five of these different services that you're using. And it's a very janky experience which translates into friction for people that are just trying to solve a problem. We feel like if we take what people are trying to do, which is to use multiple providers and create a protocol that makes that seamless, it's going to not only provide a better experience to people building these applications, it's going to be better for them in the long run for their scalability and reliability. And it's going to be better for the ecosystem five, 10 years down the road because now we built that infrastructure and we have it in place before it's absolutely necessary. I want to try to say it back to you so I understand it. 
the first thing that people clamor for is the token and the financial incentives. And <laughs> yeah, and I know why they want that. And if I think about scaling and fear the first way, the one that is focused on the token is let's make more nodes under Infure. So incentivize one giant monopoly Infure just to get bigger and have some token incentive structure. That's one way. But the thing you said, which is, no, let's duplicate Infure itself and have lots of Infures on shared standards. So instead you're saying like, okay, we could self-regulate, maybe the wrong word, but I'm thinking of when a utility has a grid. It's like, look, there could be people making coal nuclear, hydro. But when you send electricity to the grid, if the grid standard, you can literally turn off your coal and switch to nuclear at a certain space. And so is that a way to kind of think about it in a non-technical analogy? Yeah. And sticking with that analogy, what we would release is not, hey, we're a power plant that does this. You can do it too. It's, hey, here's a kit to help you set up your power plant. And by using our kit, you're going to at least be able to put out this amount of power per day and join the network. And we'll ensure that the network always gets at least this performance out of you. That's very interesting. And one question I had, because I think doing our research, you had talked about this early on, about being decentralized from the beginning. Why now? Like, what was the trigger that this felt important to make this decision right now? Two things. So one is there are increasing alternative providers to Infura, where we're seeing people pop up and we saw a couple like pop up and then immediately disappear because they couldn't gather market share. If they can't gather market share in this, you're never going to get a diversity of providers. That's why I was mentioning like you could see only three or four surviving long term and you can't go to the other three and say, hey, how about we all just send 10% of our traffic to this one to help them survive? Like we're all VC funded. That's not going to work. <laughs> but if you're building a network that's like permissionless and anybody can join this. And the way that the traffic gets routed is not favoring one over the other. It's based on known criteria like performance, region, capabilities, things like that. It gives an opportunity for people to carve out a niche for themselves where they can actually build a business. My thing is, I would love to build a cloud provider to uh, compete with the big cloud providers like Google and Amazon out there. But how do you break into that market? It's such a challenge at this point. And that's one of the things that's exciting to me. Everybody looks at Web3 and says, oh, this is what it means to me. For some, it's like creatives and NFTs. Like for me, it's incentivized infrastructure. There are people that doubt NFTs and the value of NFTs. There are people that doubt DeFi and how long it'll stay around. To me, one of the things that you can't doubt when it comes to Web3 is that it's shown that if there's a incentive and potential value for people to run infrastructure, whether that's a stake or a validator or a miner, people will do it. You can incentivize people to run infrastructure. So if that's the case, can we incentivize people to run infrastructure at a performance level that they can serve a traffic and compete with professional providers? That'd be my end goal is to one day have a Web3 network that can allow people to join and compete with cloud providers on yeah. like web two scale stuff. I agree. I think that participating in trading and DeFi and NFTs, my takeaway was the same as this was programmatically allowing you to play with incentives, which is extremely powerful. The reason why I got so bullish on NFTs, is I was like, people can understand this and not be turned off as quickly as DeFi. So you can take the same experiments on incentivization and play with something so simple. It's not about the board ape. 
It's not like I believe in this thing like this is like a cultural thing. And although that's all very possible, the thing that got me geeked out was that you could encode incentives and watch human behavior. The challenge that you're going for, because in that simple model where people said, hey, EG, just add more nodes, let's release a token. That's a known capitalistic pursuit of more money. And I want to do that. You're going after something that's even cooler to me, which is to get people to play in the sandbox nicely for the better good of everybody. Because it would be easy to create a structure where you have a node that says, let's get back to 100%. Let's dominate and let's try to get back to that by creating incentive better than everybody else to win the monopoly, which is what most VC-backed companies are trying to do, or even they don't say it, I think that's kind of their goal. What you're trying to do is play with incentives to say, can we get along for the better growth of all of this? And I think that's just a really cool mission to go after. Yeah, you're explaining it right. Call me crazy, but I don't see it as a big risk because it's kind of doubling down on what's worked for us so far. We've gotten the success that we've had by focusing on growing the ecosystem and feel like this is like the next step on that same trajectory. I love how you say it doesn't seem like a big risk because I feel similar. I think it feels like a big risk for people that only know how to pattern recognition on what's worked in the past. So for people that are trying to build the future, they're like, well, this is exactly how to do it differently. So it's worth trying. Whereas other people would just want to fail conventionally. And so I love the fact that you're like, well, why wouldn't we try to do it this way? It's been working for you so far. You should keep it up. Easy. This has been a lot of fun. We'd like to end these episodes with the same closing question, which is what are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? I'll start in the reverse. That six year is that decentralized inferior plan. That is going to be a multi-year, very complex strategy that needs to get executed on. And I don't know what we're going to be working on on that five and six years down the road. Like right now, we're working on years one and two. But I'm hoping that the first couple of years of that are successful and it's going to iterate and become a much larger initiative over the next five. I feel like I run two different businesses or participate in running two different businesses right now where there's the decentralized stuff that we're pushing forward as our long-term strategy. And then near term, we have the typical day-to-day stuff of running the SaaS Infura business. And that's very much focused on like near-term user problems where people still don't feel like they have the tools that they need for querying NFT data. So we launched an NFT API beta a few months ago, but we've already gotten a lot of feedback on, this is good, it gets us maybe 70% of what we need. These are the additional things that we need from this API so that we can really build the best NFT products that we need to. So that's one thing, focusing on our new NFT API. And then similarly, a lot of people that entered the space building NFTs came from more of a builder background, like more creatives and not like software development there's been this rise in like low code, no code, different types of tools focused on builders and not just programmers. So we've been investing heavily in that space. What are the tools that builders are asking for so that they can create NFTs as easily as possible? Or even interacting with other like DeFi projects. So not just focused on NFTs, but just broadly Web3, creating low code, no code tools. Don't have anything specific to share just yet, but hopefully soon, because we've been working on that for quite a few months. That's really exciting. We'll have to have you back. EG, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for the time today. Great. Thanks, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 